0: Well, as the parent of an almost four-year-old, I've become very well acquainted with Disney movies. Got a couple kids before that, too. We've watched a lot of them. Uh, When it first came out a few years ago, Catherine, my youngest, wanted to watch Frozen 2 at just about every opportunity that she was able to. And the Frozen franchise, uh, I don't remember when the first Frozen movie came out. Elizabeth was very, very young, um, so that's probably a good almost 10 years now. I think they began to turn the mold for a Disney princess movie on its head. Because the first iteration, you know, had two female, female protagonists, Elsa and Anna, and there really wasn't any true correspondent male companion. In, in fact, the, the movie at times seemed to poke fun of uh, kind of Disney legacy, uh, this, that typical model of love at first sight, by causing, you know, one of them, Anna, to fall in love with the, the movie's villain. Hans is his name. Now, in the second movie, one of the side stories in the film involved the relationship between Princess Anna and her boyfriend named Christoph. And Christoph in the film behaves in ways that are they're not typical of what you've seen in Disney movies in the past. Right? We see him kind of fumbling over himself, trying to find the right time to propose. He's feeling rebuffed and ignored by Anna. He's desperately wondering if his affection for Anna is reciprocated. In an interview about the movie, the the woman who voices Anna, Kristen Bell, shared uh, something that she found pretty profound. because She felt that the male representation by Kristoff was very different than what she had experienced in other movies before. She was on uh, the show called The View, and she had this to say about a scene that occurs late in the movie. She said, he rescues, Christoph rescues Anna from something dangerous in the midst of battle. He swoops her up, and the first thing he says to her is, I'm here, what do you need? He doesn't say, I've got you, stand back. He says, I'm here, what do you need? See, the movie rightfully revolves around the sisters, as the focal point. But Christoph, even in his chivalrous actions, is content with his role. He, he doesn't ride in like a knight in shining armor atop his reindeer, that's what he rides on. And he doesn't go in and just kind of take control of the situation. But he defers to Anna's expertise. He presents himself as a resource that allows Anna to continue to take center stage in the film. He's not trying to fix her problems for her. Right? That's something that I'm so prone to do when my wife comes home complaining about work. Instead, he places himself at Anna's disposal and allows her to direct what comes next. Now, the society that we live in continues to be one that is largely patriarchal. It's largely dominated by men. There are those who would watch a film like Frozen 2 and cringe at what they perceive to be, you know, the emasculation or the feminization of men. But I would argue that Christoph is showing a side of masculinity that is not usually shown, but is masculinity nonetheless. What does it mean for him to to show his emotion, to take a back seat to a female protagonist? And it left me wondering, do we find models and examples of this in Scripture? Now, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It's transcendent. It is relevant to our lives in all situations. But it was also reflective of the culture in which it was written. The Bible often reflects the patriarchal society that existed before and around the time of Jesus. But every now and then, we see echoes of God's foundation, uh, of what I would call God's democracy, right, that shine through. What what we see in, in um, Paul's writing in the book of Galatians, that there is no male nor female, nor slave nor free, no, nor Greek nor barbarian, but that all are equal in the sight of God. And so every now and then we see figures in the Scripture who, behave in ways that are countercultural from that broader culture around them. And so this morning, we're going to look at another one of the Advent portraits, characters around the Nativity, the adoptive father of Jesus, who's named Joseph. In the Nativity, Joseph is a secondary figure. In fact, we don't really know a whole much about him. We don't, we don't learn much about him after these stories. He's referenced in Luke's account of uh, boy Jesus at the temple. If, you, if you've been grown up in church, you probably remember that story where you know, his family leaves Jerusalem, and they're like, where's Jesus? And it turns out he was in the temple, you know, in his father's house. He's mentioned, but he doesn't say a word. You know, only Mary has the speaking part in that encounter. And after the events of Jesus' childhood, he seems to disappear almost entirely in the Gospels. You know, later Jesus is named as the son of Joseph, but that's about it. Joseph is seemingly non-existent. But he appears to be content to fill his role as a supporter to what's going on in the Nativity story as Mary carries and gives birth to Jesus. So we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about him. If you have Bibles or Bible apps that you want to open and follow along, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. And this is really the primary information we get, the primary place we get any kind of information about Joseph. Now I'm going to read a couple verses and then unpack them. So I want to encourage you like if you open it up, keep it open because I'm going to keep coming back to it. Keep refer- referencing to it a few times. So I'm going to start by reading Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. Matthew says, "Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, in these two verses, I believe there is a lot to be said about the character of Joseph. Now, just for some background, based on a number of rabbinic texts, it appears that men in Jesus' day often married around the age of 18. So we'll just go on that assumption. Joseph's probably, most likely, somewhere roughly in that age bracket. In verse 18, it, it, there's a mention of their betrothal. I spoke of this ceremonial process last week. But just like what we saw last week with Luke, it goes, uh, Matthew goes out of his way to remind the reader that Mary was a virgin. She's found to be with child before Joseph and Mary came together. And just in case you missed it, that, that is a euphemism for, their, for physical intimacy. So we have two writers of the text across multiple passages clearly highlighting the miraculous nature of the virgin birth. Now, what one of the movements in our skeptical age is to uh, what they call demythologize the stories of the Bible. Basically, you know, if science can't prove it, It's myth. And we want to take those things out of scriptures, is, is what they advocate for. But honestly, I just want to say, like, I don't have time personally for that kind of nonsense. Like, just because we can't understand the way that God works through empirical science does not automatically mean that the biblical authors are just making things up. Because that's kind of what, that's usually what is suggested of them. As we saw this summer in the Apostles' Creed, the earliest Christians affirmed the truth of the virgin birth, and as a result, I do as well. But here, getting back to Joseph, we see the character of Joseph, that Joseph is both righteous and compassionate. Right? Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, and without knowing the specifics of the situation, his first thought, as you probably would imagine if you were in his shoes, was that Mary had been unfaithful to him. He believes that Mary has committed adultery with another man that she's been cheating. The pregnancy has yet to become public knowledge. Now, in in our culture, right, this would be a prime opportunity for the couple to appear on Maury Povich. Like, Joseph doesn't know who the father is, but he knows it's not him. Get some DNA testing in here. But Joseph, as we see in the text, is not all about this validation by public opinion. He decides to divorce her quietly. So from the text, we see that Joseph was a righteous individual. He did his best to follow the law of Yahweh. He behaves in manners that are right by the law. In light of this seemingly open and shut case of adultery, Joseph would have been permitted. It was within his rights to get a certificate of divorce and move on with his life. But there's a difference between being righteous and legalistic or put another way there's a difference between being righteous and being judgmental joseph did not disconnect his compassion from mary from his conviction i know too often i have seen folks who want to live righteously they want to do right by god but they lack the compassion and care for those around them right in my spiritual youth i was one of those people I carried a scorched earth policy when it came to doing the right thing. I alienated, I hurt friends because I callously called out sin in their lives. I may have been right according to the law, but I lacked any compassion or tact in that process. By divorcing Mary quietly, it provided an avenue for Joseph to, to, to protect her. Because the operating assumption would have been that Mary had had an affair with another man. And if that went public, with the reason for the divorce, there would have been a risk for Mary being stoned to death. Joseph isn't interested in putting Mary on blast here. He's not looking for validation. He's not looking to to be honored by the general public. He's not seeking to hurt Mary in, in what feels like the way that she has hurt him. But Joseph responds with empathy, and in doing so, he's able to maintain his personal character but still care for this woman that he's betrothed to. Now, as we know, in hindsight, Joseph is operating on some faulty assumptions. So let's see how how an angel comes to respond to him. So let's pick up at Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew tells us what that means, which means God with us. The angel addresses Joseph as son of David, and I mentioned this last week that Jesus was from the lineage of David, and this helps fulfill one of the messianic prophecies, one of the many messianic prophecies made about Jesus, uh, the promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But what's interesting about that is this may be the only place in the New Testament where that title, Son of David, is used by anyone other than Jesus. But we see that this angelic message is loaded with meaning. In verse 20, the angel tells Joseph not to fear. It's a very common thing that you see when angels appear to to, uh, to people. They, They speak these words of comfort. We saw this last week with Mary. But here... It's not like usual. Normally when an angel appears, it's because they are fearful. There's a terror involved when this kind of divine messenger, divine being appears in your presence. But that's not what he's telling. If you look at the text, he's not telling Joseph not to fear him. But the angel tells Joseph not to worry or fear about taking Mary as his wife. The angel is instructing Joseph to change his perspective to stand by Mary through this ordeal. He's encouraging them that, Joseph, you're not compromising your ethics by standing by Mary. In fact, he would be doing the will of God. And by Joseph staying with Mary, he is able to share some of the stigma that she is going to invariably face. The angel basically says, don't pay those haters no mind. But the angel continues to provide more information. He says that this pregnancy has been conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. In short, the angel is saying to Joseph, you're not the father. Joseph says, I already know that. But is also able to diffuse his suspicions, his worst fear that there is someone else that Mary has cheated on him with. The angel instructs him that the origin of this child is divine and that he ought to stand by Mary so that she doesn't have to navigate the complexities of the situation alone. In the next verse, verse 21, the angel provides some instructions that they are to name the child Jesus. And then in verse 22, he quotes that same passage that we saw Luke reference, uh, Isaiah seven 14. First on the name of Jesus. Now, Jesus uh, would have been pronounced at that time Yeshua. It was a, a pretty popular name, and it, it literally means he saves. It's very close to Joshua, Yehoshua, which means God saves. Now, names were very important in that culture, and so the angel making this pronouncement that his name should be Jesus was foreshadowing this type of purpose that this child would have before the Lord, that before he was born, his name highlighted that he would be working salvation. But then the angel cites that passage, 714, that a virgin will conceive and they'll give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now, interestingly, Luke never mentions this passage. He references it. He implies it, but he doesn't mention it. And just just to kind of give us a little bit of history lesson here, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. Matthew is writing to a a population that would have known these, these Isaiah passages from a young age. Matthew is intending to point forward to the Jewish population. This is the guy that you've been waiting for. Luke, on the other hand, is writing to, he's writing a more uh, generic historical narrative. He's writing to uh, Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish. And so for, for Luke to kind of start dropping all these Old Testament prophecies, they're going to be like, I don't know what this means. It would have been a non-starter for them. So that's why we see, you know, Matthew specifically drawing this out much more specifically. But in this passage, it links Jesus with this term, Emmanuel. But nowhere else in the Gospels is Jesus ever called Emmanuel, which means God with us, because we should understand this as a title, not a name. Jesus, His name, describes what He does, that God saves, but Emmanuel describes who He is, God with us. All right, let's finish off the text, and then we'll, we'll, we'll circle back for some application, see how Joseph responds. Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So following the angelic visitation, Joseph wakes up and he is obedient to the command from the angel. Verse 25 indicates that there was no physical union between Joseph and Mary until Jesus was born. Now, I would argue that the text seems to imply that Joseph and Mary lived a normal married life after Jesus was born. Catholic tradition, on the other hand, teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. And I just want to say that I, you know, I'm not trying to like cast stones at other traditions, but I don't see any textual evidence in the scriptures that would point to that fact. In fact, there are many occasions that we see encounters between Jesus and his siblings. You have James, the brother of Jesus, who was the writer of the epistle, that letter in the New Testament. James is also the the figure who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. So either, there's two options, either these individuals were stepbrothers and sisters that Joseph brought in from a prior marriage, and that's what the the Catholic position, the Catholic tradition typically advocates for, or these were biological children of Joseph and Mary, therefore half-siblings of Jesus, right? Shared the same mother but different father. Personally, I lean on the latter, uh, that Mary and Joseph had their own children after the birth of Jesus. But out of this, what I really want us to remember is that Joseph was obedient. He followed through with what the angel commanded. All right, let's, let's take some time and see, are there places where there's an intersection of what we see from Joseph in our own lives? But before we do this, I want to to point out something really critical, that first and foremost, this story is not actually about Joseph, it's a story about Jesus. We want to make sure that as we read the scriptures, we don't just try to moralize a, a character portrait like this, a story of Joseph, and then force ourselves to see commands that the Bible doesn't actually present. So what I'm giving you are not, the Bible in this passage is not telling you to do any of these things that I'm saying. But Joseph is a figure to respect because he lived a life in pursuit of Yahweh, of God. And so, as a result, there are characteristics for us to consider that maybe there is something that was valuable for Joseph might be valuable for us as well. So, I've got three points each coming from each of those segments that we read this morning. In the first section, we saw that Joseph had his priorities in order. Right? We saw that Joseph lived a life of firm conviction, but also one of compassion. What might that look like for us? What does it mean to pursue righteousness, to live rightly, but to do so with empathy and love? So to give an example, I want to go to the, um, the world of Les Miserables, right? the, the movie based on the Broadway play, based on the epic, long book. Have Anyone ever read Les Miserables by Victor Hugo? I hear it's super long. I've just watched the movie. The story, if those of you who may have seen it or know it, know that the story revolves around, there's two main characters. A character named Jean Valjean, who is an ex-convict? He spent 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread, and I don't think it was just 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread, but he, he kept trying to escape, and so uh, unsuccessfully, and that kept tacking up his time. He's finally released, and after trying to restart his life, he is constantly, uh, he's constantly harried, hounded by the primary antagonist, a police inspector named Javert who is defined in the story for his legalism and his lack of empathy for criminals. So those are two main characters, Jean Valjean, the ex-con, and Javert, the police officer. And Javert is really the perfect example for what Joseph could have been without any compassion. Javert lives by the letter of the law, but he's kind of a jerk. Now, after getting out of prison... Valjean has nothing to his name. He is, in essence, homeless. And there's a a figure, a bishop, who opens his home up for Valjean to stay with him that night. But for Jean Valjean, old habits die hard, and in the middle of the night, he runs off with the bishop's silverware, which in this time would have actually been silver, not like whatever metal I have in my drawer. So he runs out. He steals the bishop's items of value and flees the home. But he's he's captured by the police, and he's returned to the bishop. Now, Valjean, since he has been captured, he knows that he's basically going to be spending the rest of his life in prison for being a repeat offender. Now, Victor Hugo, who wrote this novel, was a follower of Jesus, and I think this is one of the most profound places in his writing that he weaves the gospel story into the epic. Because when Jean Valjean is returned to the bishop's house, the bishop tells the police that he gave the silverware to Valjean. But he goes on and he chastises Valjean because he says, Jean Valjean, in your haste, you left without kind of the signature piece of this collection which I gave you, these two silver candlesticks. So not only does he let Valjean off the hook, but he gives of his resources even further to Valjean. The police accept the story and leave, and the bishop presses into Valjean. He says, your life has been spared for God. Use this money, to, to use the silver that you can get from this to make an honest man out of yourself. That's the bishop. Righteousness, but filled with compassion and empathy. Javert, on the other hand, doesn't believe that Valjean has changed and watches for him, watches for him the whole way through this story, looking for him to put one foot out of line so that he can haul him back off to prison. Right? As I interact with folks in churches, so often that is our perspective of God, just waiting us for us to get that toe out of line so he can bring the hammer down. While the bishop provides compassion mixed with his conviction, the path of Javert is one of judgment. Because both the bishop and Javert are honest and righteous men. Both go about doing the right things, but the path of the bishop leads to flourishing. He absorbs the cost of Valjean's theft by himself, out of his own pockets, but in so doing gives Valjean the tools that he needs to break the cycles of poverty and crime. It leads to life, but the path of Javert leads to death. I don't know what situations you face. But I would encourage you that just because you live in alignment with the laws of God does not mean that you're following the path of Jesus. Righteousness is important. But just pure moralistic righteousness without empathy, I would argue, is just another path towards death. We ought to live with conviction and compassion. The second passage, we see this angelic message. We see Joseph encouraged to share in the suffering and stigma that Mary is about to have to endure. Joseph is encouraged in humility to play second fiddle. Right? He is tasked with being the father to Jesus, raising him as his own, even though he's not the father. There's no blood relation between them. And as we discussed at the beginning, following the nativity, Joseph basically fades into obscurity. He disappears. We don't know anything about him. We only know he's a carpenter because that's what Jesus was. And chances are Jesus was just following in line with uh, Joseph's profession. Now, I don't don't want to spend too much time here because we discussed this last week, but what would it look like for you to be okay with not being in the spotlight? to not getting the recognition that you feel like you deserve. All right? One of the best definitions of humility is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. Humility isn't beating yourself up thinking that you're not worthy of anything. Not, humility is not being a doormat where people can walk all over you, but it is about putting the needs of others above your own. It requires you to be fully rooted in the affection of God to enable us to live in a way that cares for others and doesn't seek our own good first. doesn't mean that we don't seek our own good, but we don't start with that. Especially if seeking our own good is at the expense of others. What might it look like for us to be able to be willing to be in the position of supporter? Like Joseph did. Like Christoph did in... in Frozen 2. The last take-home I want us to see is how Joseph responds to the angel. He is obedient. He listened to what was said. He was flexible. He didn't just stubbornly stick with what he initially thought had happened. He had thought Mary had had an affair, and he didn't stick with that. But Joseph was willing to be open to new information and ideas and was able to shift his trajectory on this issue with Mary. Now, there is a ton that could be said about this in our present culture. Whether it's your thought on, you know, COVID and vaccines, climate change, there are plenty of spaces where people do this all the time, or hopefully we can do this all the time, right? We're operating under a certain assumption some new information comes in, and it's okay for us to, to change our trajectory. Many folks talk about, quote unquote, evolving on an issue. There's nothing wrong with that. But specifically, what I want to talk about here is how this evolution, you know, how Joseph evolves on this, comes to, to pass. Because in this incident, the information that comes to him is from a divine source, the angel. I want to challenge us to be flexible with what God might be saying to us. Don't be so dug in on your beliefs that you're unwilling to move an inch. Right? What happens if you read the scriptures and you notice that God wants you to live in a way that is different from what you're living right now? Maybe it deals with your perspective on tithing or giving like we talked about a few weeks ago. Maybe it's you know, the challenge comes in your, your, your view of your sexual ethic. Maybe as you read the Bible, you come face to face with the fact that God cares for the oppressed and the immigrant. The alien or foreigner among you is what the the Old Testament says, but it's basically immigrants for the people of Israel. Whatever the case may be, are you willing to give the the revelation of God that same power in your life as we often give to the broader culture to help us change our trajectory in alignment with what God desires? For us? Are we willing to read a piece of scripture, see what God says, and begin to change how we live our lives so that we can more fully live in the way that God has said is good for us to live in? Joseph models for us what it means to be a person of righteousness, but not out of legalism, not out of obligation. He lives rightly without leaving a wake of suffering in his path. He was compassionate. He cares for even those that he felt had sinned greatly. He was wrong about that, but the people he thought were. He was humble in putting the needs of others above his own. And he was flexible and obedient in changing directions based upon the wishes of God. I want to encourage you to take a look at your life And see what it might mean for you to make space for these virtues in it. May we be a people like Joseph, who, although in this text appears to be the main character, recognized that the story was not about him, but it was actually about secondarily Mary and firstly about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, surround us with your love. Knowing that when we act and we live, it is not to seek the validation of the masses, the crowd. It's not to prove to you how much we love you, God. But that because you already love us, you have enabled us to live in ways that bring flourishing. May we be a people who live rightly, but do so without being jerks. Lord, help us to live with compassion and empathy to those around us. Lord, help us live lives that are humble. Lord, that we put the needs of others above our own, that we're not uh, not out there in this this, uh, ego trip to always get our way, to always feel that we need to be the Savior or the one who is right. And Lord, give us the, the ability to be flexible to know that we don't have all the answers. Lord, to know that there might be ways that we're living that are outside of your desires for us. But when you bring conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we have our eyes opened and change our trajectory to live more fully in the ways that you would have us live. Lord, we pray these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.